Welcome to another inspirational message from Dave Coop, Senior Pastor of Coastal Church in Vancouver, Canada. I don't know why, church, in March of 2011, the Lord said, make this a month of prayer. But I think we need to just listen to his voice and say, okay, we're going to be praying. We're going to be more alert. We're going to give more attention to prayer. We're going to study prayer. And we're going to realize that we need this divine connection with God. Prayer isn't always just for when you get into a problem. Thank God he delivers us when we fall into a problem, we get trapped somewhere. Our God comes along and rescues us. We know that. And he's there for us. But God also wants us to be praying when things are going good. And this week in the life group, you'll hear Pastor Jim Simbola talk about that, that we also pray. It's like a preventative thing. God will nudge you to pray so that you're prepared for what is to come. And I don't know what's down the road. I'm not prophesying something bad or doom and gloom. But I am saying we sense God is asking our church to be on alert, to be praying, to be in a season of prayer, to learn how to pray. Saturday mornings, 8 o'clock, we're here. Corporate prayer. That means as a church family, we come together to pray. And this is your invitation. If you haven't come, it's growing on Saturdays. More and more people are coming out to pray on Saturday mornings. We start off with a little bit of teaching on prayer, how to pray. We spend some time praying on our own. And then for the last 15 minutes, we pray in groups. It's a very simple format. Anybody can do it. You learn how to pray. One of the greatest ways to learn how to pray is to pray. And the greater ways to learn how to pray with other people, we learn how to pray. So I challenge you, make an opportunity, take that opportunity, come on out Saturdays and pray with us. There's a story in 2 Samuel We won't read it this morning, but in 2 Samuel, around chapter 11, David was at ease. The armies had gone out and they were fighting, but David decides to stay back in his palace. He is at the peak of his career. He was an amazing politician. He was an amazing musician. He was an amazing poet. He was an amazing fighter, a great military man. He had such a unique gifting package, and he's at the peak of his career. He has kind of subdued most of his enemies. He's got the Ark of the Covenant back. His, his house is in order, so to speak, and everything is going smooth, and he is at ease. And when everybody else is out there doing the work, he is at ease. Sometimes the safest place in our life is in the fight. We're safest when we're fighting the good fight of faith. And instead of fighting, he kind of takes it easy. He looks one night over his balcony, and he sees down below this beautiful woman bathing. And testosterone shoots up. He, he gives into it, and he says, hey, guys, go find that lady. Bring her over to my house. And he finds out that she's a wife of one of his leading soldiers. He commits adultery. He sets it up for that guy to die. It's a mess. The Bible tells you the failures and the successes of people. And so what happens is David goes through one of the most challenging times of his life. What, when did he fail an obedience test? When things were going well. So our obedience is tested when we're at ease, but our obedience is also tested when we're under pressure, peer pressure, the pressures of life. At that point, we have a choice to obey or not to obey. Obedience is connected to the power of your prayer life. In Daniel chapter 3, we read the story of a couple guys who get thrown into a fire. But let me backtrack and give you some perspective on what happens. They're thrown into a fire because they didn't bow. They chose to obey God rather than obey man. These young men were taken from Jerusalem. 
They were taken captive into Babylon, today's Iran. And when they were taken captive, they were not like the others. They weren't made slaves. These were the cream of the crop. These are the brightest guys, the best-looking guys. They were picked by King Nebuchadnezzar. And he's, he was thinking, I am, instead of making them slaves or just executing this enemy, I'm going to take them and train them and have them work for me. I'm going to strip them of their identity, give them my identity of my culture, and then I'll have these intelligent people working for me. So he brings them to his nation. And they think they're going to be slaves, but instead they get this amazing scholarship. They learn the language. They, they have to speak the language. They, they get the king's food. They, and they're, they're, really, they're stripped of their identity in every way, culturally, language-wise. They're living in a strange land. And uh, they even have, have their names changed. Uh, we know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that's not their, their original names they were actually given the names of Babylonian gods. Han- Hananiah was the name that was originally Shadrach's name, and Hananiah meant God is gracious. They, when he came to that country, he said, you don't get that name anymore. That's what your mom named you, but here you're going to get a different name. We're going to call you Shadrach, which means illuminated by the sun god. It was one of their gods. Another guy was Michel, and Michel, was, his name meant who is like God. Who is like our God? What an awesome name to be named. But they said, no, you don't get to be called that. Instead, we're going to call you Meshach, which means who is like Venus. Venus was the same as the Ishtar God, the goddess of fertility, the sensual love God. That's going to be your name. So your mommy named you who is like God, but we're going to give this name who is like Venus or Ishtar. Man, that would be tough to have your name taken away from you, especially when it's such a powerful name. And they said, no, you don't get to be called that. And then Abednego, originally his name was Azariah, which meant the Lord is my helper. He gets Abednego, which means the servant of Nego or the God of their wisdom. And so all these guys had their names taken from them. They had their culture taken from them. They're in a different country. They served under a eunuch. And most uh, Bible scholars believe they also became eunuchs. So you talk about stripped of your identity. These guys were in a different land, different place, different names, and trained. And then they were given great jobs, leadership jobs. They had, they were, their, God's hand was on them. Despite all of that, they began to prosper and were given responsibility, leadership responsibilities. Nebuchadnezzar decides that he's going to build a 90 to 100 foot image covered in gold, and he's on an eagle trip. And so the deal is this, everybody has to bow down and worship the image. On the flat plain south of Babylon, he sets up this image, about 100 feet high, 10 stories high, and he says when the musicians play, absolutely everybody, every language, every nationality, he'd conquered a lot of the world, everybody's there, all must bow, Literally thousands of people on this plane. If you don't bow, here's the deal. We're going to throw you into the fire. Well, three guys don't bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow. They stick out like sore thumbs. There's some narcs in the crowd. They're called Chaldeans. And they, they didn't like them from the very beginning. So they go to the king and say, hey, these three guys aren't bowing. The king says, what? Bring them to me. So they bring them to him. The king says, is it true? I'm not sure I trust these guys. Is it true that you didn't bow? They go, yeah, yeah, we didn't bow. 
He said, well, we're, we're going to do this thing all over again. Because he actually likes them. He said, we're going to do this all over again. But you've got to bow. And if you don't bow, here's the deal, guys. I don't, you're good workers and all, but I am throwing you into the fire. You get that? You're burning. And I don't know what God you're serving, but what God can save you out of my fire? And it's interesting, their response. They said, well, we're not going to be careful how we respond to you, king. But here's the deal. I got the verse in there. If you throw us in the fire, the God we serve can rescue us from your roaring furnace and anything else you might cook up, O king. Just a little bit of sarcasm to the king there. But even if he doesn't, it wouldn't make a bit of difference, O king. We still won't worship your gods or worship the, God, the gold statue you set up. Got that, king? We trust our God. He is able to deliver us, but if he doesn't deliver us and his sovereign choice decides not to, we're going to be okay. So go ahead. We're not bowing. Don't you like that obedience? I, you, you talk about sold out, obeying under pressure. And they, you might be under pressure in your workplace. These guys are under more pressure. You might be under pressure on the hockey team or the football team or the, the club that you belong to, to bow. These guys are under more pressure. Huge identity pressure. But when the rubber hits the road, they stand up and say, no. We're not going to bow. And so the deal is, music comes up. They don't bow. King's ticked off. He's so mad. He's raging mad. He says, bring me them here. Heat the furnace seven times hotter. I don't know what good that would have done, but heat it hotter than what it is. I mean, if you burn, you burn. He says, and throw them in there. And he heats it up so hot that his men die throwing him. The blast of the furnace actually kills some of the men. They land in the furnace. And they're tied up. The ropes burn off, but their clothes don't burn. Matter of fact, they come out not even smelling like smoke. And in the fire, you can read the story in Daniel chapter 3. In the fire, the king looks from a long distance and he says, One, two, three, four. Wait a minute. One, two, three... Hey, did we throw three people in there? I got a problem. One, they're not burning, but secondly, there's somebody else there. Who else is it? He said, that looks like the Son of God. It's Jesus. Jesus was there before he came to this world. Jesus was. It's called a theophany or Christophany, Christ appearing in the Old Testament. Jesus in there with them. They didn't burn. The king says, we got a problem. <laughs> Bring them out. He brings them out. They don't even smell like smoke. And he says, uh, you guys, you're God's God. As a matter of fact, it says, let me read exactly what he says. He says, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language who speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. But there is no other God who can deliver like this. Another translation said, there is none like him. Sounds like the song we sang. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. Our God is higher. Greater, stronger, higher than 90 feet. That's who they were worshiping. Folks, this morning, the God we obey in tough times is greater, is stronger, is higher, and is able to deliver us out of any fiery furnace. Why? Because, yeah, thank you for it this morning. 
Because when we're in that tribulation, notice the fourth man didn't show up before the fiery furnace. That would have been nice. He shows up in the fiery furnace. When we obey him and trust him there, he shows up. There is power in our prayers when we just obey, even when we don't understand it. Prayer and obedience, they go hand in hand. Number two, prayer acts like a lubricant to help things go smoothly when we are under pressure. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they were asked to bow there, that was not the first day they prayed. Our prayer life has to be consistent. The Lord said to pray always. Don't faint. Don't lose heart. Paul said to pray without ceasing. There's this lubrication of prayer in our life. Something like machinery. I can relate to machinery. I had to work around machinery on the farm when we worked on the oil rigs, lots of machinery. And one of the assignments we always had was to grease the equipment. Throw in a grease gun, every grease erg had to be greased. You couldn't cheat on it because if you cheat on it, things began to bind, things began to overheat, began to wear out, or we'd get corroded. And our prayer life is like that because you can get away without greasing something for maybe a week or so. But after a while, the bearings will overheat, begins to corrode, and it no longer functions smoothly. And prayer, you can get away without praying for a week or a month or maybe even longer than that. But when the pressures of life come, all of a sudden you'll find yourself burning up, seizing up, corroding. Your life begins to disintegrate. There's this constant lubrication of prayer that needs to be in our life. I went to a men's retreat one time, and what we did is we got this car, a little four-cylinder car. We put it up on blocks, and we... uh, drained all the oil out of the motor, put the plug back in, started the thing up, it was running, and then we took a, uh, a brick and put it on the accelerator, and that thing was just, it's like a red line, this little car. And then we, then, we, uh, then we all predicted how long the motor would last before it seized up. And some said five minutes, some said 30 minutes. Actually, the thing went pretty long. It went for, it was like close to an hour, I think, before it finally went, then it seized right up. I mean, it was toast, done, burned up, finished. The only way you could fix that motor is you'd have to tear it apart, restore it, put all new components back into it, and then the thing could run again. And when we take prayer out of our life, the lubrication of prayer out of our life, we can go for a while, but if we keep running like that, we literally begin to seize up. Are we finished? No. God can restore us, but it's so much better to keep the lubrication in our life. Prayer is like a lubricant in our life that keeps things going. God, or our Lord called them into the garden to pray before they entered into temptation when he was crucified. What was the Lord doing? He was helping them to pray preventively for something that was coming up so that we can make it through the challenges, the rough times, the pressure of life. We stay in prayer. Number three, disobedience hinders the power of prayer from being released. Last week, we made it clear that when we pray, the power of the Holy Spirit is released. Our disobedience can be a roadblock or a hindrance to that prayer. As much as my father taught us to make sure that we greased it, that we oiled the machinery, he also said, make sure you check that air filter. We don't want dirt getting into the motor. Now, we also had dirt bikes. And I learned something on our dirt bikes is that if you took off the air filter and ran without the air filter on that carburetor, you could get more power. 
And so as kids, I mean, we try anything to get more power out of the thing, right? We take off the muffler. We took off the air filter. My dad came along, what are you guys doing? Get the air filter. You're going to destroy your motor. You're sucking all the dirt into the motor. And it was, oh, okay. Don't want that. Put the air filter back on. And you suck dirt into your life. You suck sin into your life and don't deal with it. Don't filter it out. It clogs and burns up the motor, that prayer power of your life. So our Lord says... Be obedient. When sin enters in your life, come to me, confess it, and it gets filtered out of your life so that it doesn't hinder the power that God wants flowing in your life. Is this making sense this morning? You are destined for greatness. God wants us to walk in the power and the authority that he gave to the church. But folks, honestly, if we keep living in stuff and doing stuff we know is wrong and then come to God and want to bless us anyhow... This doesn't work. He knows we're finite. He knows we're human. He knows we mess up. What does he expect from us? Honesty. Be real. Come to me and say, God, I'm sorry. I blew it. I missed it. Help me. And he wants to help us. He needs that honest, contrite heart. Psalm 66, verses 18 to 20. Under point A there, we must be honest with God and confess our faults. David says, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, another translation says, if I ignored it, my Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer and did not withdraw his unfailing love from me. If we're honest with God, he's not going to withdraw his unfailing love. The Holy Spirit's very good to convict us if there's things in our life. We don't have to go looking for something. We don't have to drum something up from 40 years ago. If you ask for forgiveness, then it's forgiven. You don't have to go back over and over again. If he forgives us, he forgives us. Move on. That's grace. We can move on. But if he does convict us and say, there's something you need to be dealing with, then come to him. Say, Lord, forgive me. Help me in this area. And he helps us and washes us, cleanses us. Look at 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins to him, he's faithful. He's just. He loves us. He wants to forgive us and cleanse us from every wrong. Why? Because in that place, you're empowered. He didn't come for a weak church. He didn't come to raise up a weak church. He came to raise a strong church, a mighty church. Man, as a kid on my motorbike, I wanted a powerful motorbike. The more horsepower I could get out of it, the happier I was. But in order to have that horsepower, there had to be certain things. Oil had to be in it. It had to be filtered. It had to have gasoline in it. Gasoline is a lot like your love. Love creates power. Love, faith works by love. Well, I could take a whole message. Get up a motocross bike here and I could just... <laughs> we got to do that sometime. Get a... Start it up here. Take it for a drive. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, let's move on. Point number B, the Bible is clear that our prayers... For our prayers to be effective, we must walk in forgiveness and love. We get that right? Is that, that's not new to us? Walk in forgiveness, walk in love. If we don't forgive others, our sins aren't going to be forgiven. That's out of Mark eleven twenty five. 25. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this. Guys, if you don't treat your wives right, your prayers are not going to be heard. So walking in love, walking in forgiveness is crucial for our prayers to be powerful and effective. Then fourthly, God expects us to obey his word and his voice. Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed rather those who hear the word of God, 
Now, he didn't stop there. There's no period after God there, right? Blessed rather those who hear the word of God. It doesn't say there's no period after that. It goes on and obey it. So the blessing doesn't come just because you heard the word of God. You can sit and hear the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, but there's no blessing yet. The blessing comes when we obey the word of God. If we just hear it but don't do it, James says, we elude ourselves. We elude the blessings and the promises of God. So we hear and obey. Obedience, again, releases the power in our prayers. God's word carries a weight and importance and an authority over mankind that commands respect. We have a constitution in Canada. Often you'll hear courses, they go to the Supreme, cases that go to the Supreme Court, and we, we call upon the constitution of our nation. We'll say, this is unconstitutional. We, that is kind of that, that's it, the constitution. We give it a lot of respect in our land. But there is a greater constitution over mankind, and that is God's word. His word carries more weight, more authority, and we need to really just say, every word of yours counts, God. I want to follow it. I want to do my best to obey your word because I love you. I trust you. I know you want the best for me. To drive the point home, there's an interesting example that happened a couple of years ago. In January 2009, maybe you caught this, when President Obama, at his inaugurational ceremony, something very interesting happened. At the inaugurational service, the uh, Chief Justice John Roberts, he's wearing this black robe, he's on this big podium, Capitol, million people are watching from the Washington Mall, millions of people on TV, President Obama's got his hand on the same Bible that Abraham Lincoln did at his inaugurational ceremony. This is a big deal. And what happens is the chief justice reads to President Obama this oath. Now, it's very important in the Constitution there in the United States that this oath be taken exactly the way it's worded. But what happens is the chief justice places one word at the wrong place. The word faithfully is supposed to be in the middle of the sentence. But he, he slips up and he puts faithfully at the end of the sentence. And there's this huge awkward moment. The president's like, oh, this should be at the, uh, at, the, at, the, at the middle. And his wife is standing in the background. She's kind of smiling. They know what's going on. And there's this awkward moment. Watch this and we'll finish up this message. Obama, do solemnly swear that I will execute the office of president to the United States faithfully. That I will execute the off faithfully the president office of president of the, the United States. The office of president of the United States faithfully. And will to the best of my ability. And will to the best of my ability. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. President. <laughs> You see the awkwardness of that moment? He, he doesn't get faithfully at the end of that all yet. He's still got faithfully at the end of the sentence. The lawyers are saying, oh, we got a problem. Because he didn't say it exactly the way you're supposed to say it. And according to the U.S. Constitution, uh, this, would, this has to be done right to legitimize the office of the president. And some of the lawyers were concerned that if he had to take presidential actions, they could come back and say, well, he didn't say that oath exactly right. So now they've got a problem. So the next day, they go back to the White House, and in the map room, the, just, the justice uh, 
Roberts comes back on, puts his robe on, and they redo those same words to get them exactly right. They want to make sure they obey it exactly right. The point is this, that that's man's law, and we want to make sure we obey something like that. But there is a law much higher than that law. There's a word much higher than that word, and that's God's word. And God is saying, trust me, obey my word, and watch what will happen in your life. It's really an act of surrender. It's an act of surrender of our will to his will, saying, God, I trust you. You know better than I do, and I'm going to obey your word. Secondly, we want to obey his voice. Jeremiah 7.23 says, But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And walk in all the ways that I have commanded you. Look at the last part of this verse. That it may be well with you. See, sometimes we... we we get the sense that some people, they, none of us here, of course, there would be others, but we get the sense, for some people, none of us, but for some people, I'd like to have God in my life, but just when I need him, I just want enough of God to say that I've got some insurance in my life, but I don't really want to fully obey him. I want to kind of just still do my own thing, but not totally surrender to him. And he's saying, trust me, if you obey me, it will be well with you. You may be put in some situations like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where there will be that will be tested, but if you'll stay with me, I'll be with you in those moments. Lastly, flipping over the page, go to the rewards of obeying God. Number one, there's plenty. Isaiah 119, if you're willing and obedient. Notice two words, willing and obedient. Because you can be obedient and not be willing. You can say to your child, uh, could you go make your bed? And they say, they don't say a lot. They may say no. They may do it later, whatever. They say, no, no, I want you to make your bed. And they go, okay, I'm going to make my bed. Now, they may make their bed, but they're not very willing. And we could have that attitude towards God. Okay, you said to do it. Well, then I guess I'm going to have to do it. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for the willing and obedient. God, I trust you. My whole heart, I want to serve you. I willingly do this. And... I want to show you that I love you by doing it. Then he says, you'll eat the good of the land. The second thing is joy. There's a joy that comes in obeying. Jesus said in John 15, when you obey me, you remain in my love just as I obey my Father and remain in his love. Obedience kind of puts you under this love umbrella. I have told you this, so you'll be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Joy is strength. And then lastly, confidence. Beloved, 1 John 3, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. There is a confidence that comes when you've done your best to obey Him. You've asked for forgiveness. You know there's no mask on. You're not pretending. You're honest before Him. There's a confidence that comes then in being in his presence. Confidence because I've done my best to obey you. Where I've missed it, I've been honest with you, I've said I'm sorry. That releases the power of God through our prayers. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to download free notes from this message or find out more information about Pastor Dave Coop, 
then we invite you to visit our website at www.coastalchurch.org.